Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. Before we dive into this week's episode, just wanted to uh, let you guys know that we will be taking a break after this episode um, and we'll come back for season four probably in about a month. Um, But just wanted to give you guys a heads up that this will be the last full episode for a while. We're going to be continuing with the porpoisodes, though, so definitely stick around for that. Um, But there will be some delays with that. Just everybody, Kendra, Leah, and I all have stuff going on and life is busy. So just taking a little step back for the moment. Also, um, this episode, we did have some technical difficulties, so there might be some weird audio. But hopefully you guys can still hear what's going on. Anywho, hope you guys have had an awesome week and tune in soon in about a month or so for more episodes of Breaching Extinction. If you guys have episodes that you would like to have covered, either topics, people, anything like that, definitely send us a message on Instagram or email me personally at erica at breachingextinction.com. If you'd like to be on the podcast, also feel free to reach out to us in those ways. Alrighty, guys, hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I'm here with Dennis Fukushima, the lead biologist at the Octopus Farm in Hawaii. How are you doing today, Dennis? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. 
Yes. So excited to have you here. I met Dennis on the boat a few months ago. Um, and he was telling me about all the cool work that he does with octopus. I was like, I gotta have him on here at some point. Um, but how's it going? What have, what have you been up to these days? Yeah, no, it's been, it's been really great. Uh, super hot here in Hawaii. I'm sure everyone can imagine being so close to the equator. Um, but we are pretty excited. We have another, uh, trial coming up with our baby octopus. So those paralarva, the whole, uh, I guess, focus of our operations, which we'll get into in a little bit, but, um, yeah, I just finished actually a vacation up to, uh, Alaska, Southeast Alaska. That was really fun, but to work. Yeah. Nice. Did you go look for whales up there? Oh yes. As you know, uh, went for, for all the killer whales and, my little heart exploded. That's where they all were. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Good. That's, that's good. Cause I know you came here hoping to see them and then there were no killer whales. <laughs> I mean the day that we left. Yes. And then the day after, but sometimes, you know, that that's, that's wildlife. They know, they know. And they're like, they think it's funny, you know, <laughs> like, can we just do this. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad that you finally got your killer whales. Were they transients? Were they residents? Who did you see? They were residents. Uh, there may have been some transients uh, when mm-hmm. I was in uh, Ketchikan. It was a really, really small group. They were uh, having like transient behavior, but I need to, I didn't get good enough dorsal fin photos. They were so far away to confirm, but sure. the other ones were resident. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so cool. I have yet to see the Northern residents, definitely on the bucket list. Did you go out with Alan Marine tours? I did not. I, I really wish I did because I uh, one of the captains I know here in Hawaii used to work for Alan Marine and keeps it trying to get me to uh, apply for, for a job with them up in Alaska. So I should have gone out just to see what it was like on the boat. But I went with a major Marine uh, and then uh, an eco kayak thing in Ketchikan. That was like the oh, only kayak adventure there. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I almost worked at Alan Marine towards the summer, but I have a pretty sweet gig here and I very much love the Monterey Bay. So I didn't want to leave, but um, no, I've heard only great things about them as far as places to work and then being like a sustainable ethical whale watching love that love that that's amazing i'm glad you got your killer whales well tell us about you dennis how did you learn to love marine life tell us about your journey how you got here your hobbies anything else you want to tell us about you yeah so um i mean i was lucky enough to be born and raised right here um, on the island of hawaii um the big island of hawaii a very, very small rural town. And uh, my grandfather uh, lived basically right on this very nice beach. And I would go to this beach pretty much every day. And that's what kind of sparked my love for the ocean. Uh, In conjunction with that, I'm sure we've all heard of The Little Mermaid. (laughs) And uh, that uh, movie, I would watch 20 times a day, basically, according to my mom. And that really kind of solidified my love for the ocean. I wanted to go and find a mermaid originally. Uh, why I wanted to be a marine scientist. And uh, it all kind of came together in sixth grade. We were focusing on the ocean. Uh, We, you know, like ocean life, and we all had to choose an animal to kind of research about. And I chose killer whales. That's where it started. And then right after that, uh, we did a project on careers. And so I learned more about, well, how do I get to like learn more? How do I get paid to learn about killer whales? I learned about being a marine scientist. Uh, And from sixth grade on is when I decided to pursue a degree in marine science, went to the University of Hawaii at Hilo, uh, got that degree and uh, have been trying to continue my passion of doing any kind of conservation efforts for the ocean since then. Amazing. I love it. And so right now you 
are obviously the lead biologist for the octopus farm. And then don't you work in whale watching as well? I do. I do. Seasonally, since a humpback whale has only come to Hawaii during the winter months, mm-hmm. uh, I am a naturalist for Body Glove Hawaii. I've been doing that for the last three years. So uh, really getting the best of both worlds, really. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. How are your populations of cetaceans in Hawaii? Um, so for the most part, like the humpback whales, that's the North Pacific stock. They're doing really well. Uh, we are getting, we got some weird observations last year. Uh, just didn't see maybe as many migrated down. Maybe it was too warm. Still kind of waiting on the science for that. But uh, the year before they were popping off. So that was great. Uh, we have sperm whales here in Hawaii and uh, globally, uh, you know, sperm whales are still uh, endangered. So that's, that's sad. And of course, whenever I have the opportunity, I do like to talk about false killer whales, even if it's just uh, really, really briefly. Uh, our main Hawaiian island insular population is endangered. And unfortunately, a lot of the evidence seems to be because of humans, um, mostly through our long line fishing industry. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, do you care to elaborate a bit on that? Yeah. So um, based in the, in the 80s, there was um, a survey done on all the uh, cetaceans here in Hawaii. Uh, they were focusing on tooth whales. And they, uh, these two researchers came across a group of about 480 false killer whales, uh, you know, all milling about. And so that became kind of the minimum uh, population estimate at that time. Today, mm-hmm. our best estimates uh, for that same group of animals is 157, I believe. Mm-hmm. And since the 80s, we can see there's been a very steep decline, uh, coincidentally, uh, during this time, the longline fishing industry kind of blew up here uh, throughout the state. And there's a lot of uh, interactions between false killer whales and, and the fisheries. Uh, they are known for depredation, which is stealing catch from a fisherman's line. A lot of times they end up entangled in that gear. Um, basically, every false killer whale here has some form of scar or injury related to being uh, either hooked or maybe entangled briefly at some point in their life. And that seems to be the biggest threat to this day for them. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. Um, Is it like, do they know why they're interested in it? Because there's like some whales that obviously are around fishing gear and like don't somehow get entangled and others that do. Is there any hypothesis as to why? Um, I don't know off the top of my head, um, kind of what, how it's been explained to me is, uh, you know, it's just, it's a really easy way to get a free meal. Uh, the fishermen have done all the hard work and uh, that fish is on the line. They'll go and as they bite down into it, um, either they might uh, bite at the wrong area and end up ingesting that hook uh, mm-hmm. or uh, as again, or it gets caught maybe on their lips or somewhere on their bodies. So that's kind of what's been happening. And sorry about my cats running all over the place. That's fine. This is, as I mentioned earlier, this is what the people expect. Peaches is the executive interrupter and like, we're very like animal friendly on this podcast. So obviously your cat has something it wants to contribute today. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Okay. So what, are there any like mitigations currently in effect to, you know, try to stop this or is it more of just like, I mean, what can you, I don't know. Is the fishing pretty bad there? Like, is there a lot of overfishing in Hawaii? You know, I don't, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. Uh, we, of course, have, uh, because they are conta- considered an endangered uh, population, mm-hmm. they um, have a take reduction team. And every year they meet, they try to uh, come up with different plans to reduce the number of false killer whales that are incidentally taken by the industry. Yeah. Um, 
Unfortunately, I believe they've been doing this for a little over five years now, maybe it's six or seven years. Um, but they, they haven't had like a noticeable, um, I guess, positive effect on, on the false killer whales. So they're, they're always remeeting. They're always trying to come up with new ideas. Um, unfortunately, it just may be something as quote unquote simple as we have to stop fishing in yeah. certain areas, but how easy that is to actually implement since it's such an important economic factor here. Uh, yeah. Kind of between a rock and a hard place, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. No, it's it, all of these issues are very like highly complex and highly nuanced, nuanced and like you don't want to just be like no fishing. Like I'm not somebody that wants to like label all fishing as bad because obviously there's a lot more to it than just like taking, you know, and and having animals get entangled. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. That's very interesting. So you are the lead biologist at the octopus farm. So tell us about the octopus farm and what you guys are doing and what your goals are and about the octopus, of course. All right. Yeah. So um, I guess we'll start with the species that we are focused on. Uh, we are working with the day octopus, um, octopus cyania. And uh, it is a native species here in Hawaii, a very, very widespread species found everywhere from the east coast of Africa, of course, here to Hawaii in pretty shallow waters, anywhere from tide pools up to 150 feet deep. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this species was selected again because of its wide range. It is mm -hmm. native here to Hawaii, so it's not like we're importing anything else that might, if they were to ever get out, for example, cause mm -hmm. like a population collapse here or, or cause some kind of trouble. Um, and the fact that the population here is actually very, very stable. We actually don't have like a commercial fisheries targeting the um, octopus. It's kind of just uh, more so recreational uh, fishermen uh, going out, catching a few. So the population remains stable. Yeah. Uh, so we are collecting them out in the wild for our brood stock uh, to work with. We're really not having an impact there. Um, and our research goal is actually to uh, complete the life cycle of the day octopus uh, in a captive setting as it currently stands there really hasn't been a lot of success with any of the medium to large size species of octopus to live through that paralarva stage. Uh, that's mm -hmm. when they hatch out of their eggs into adulthood. Uh, so basically every octopus you've seen in a zoo, an aquarium, a research facility, they've, they've all been wild caught. So that does contribute to the pressures they face. Interesting. Okay. Um, and so what is the benefit of breeding them if the population's already stable? So uh, excellent question. Uh, we would like to take start the research here uh, to kind of complete that life cycle before going into other areas where their populations maybe aren't doing as well. Uh, places like the Mediterranean parts of Asia, humans are eating a lot of octopus, you know, upwards of 20 pounds of octopus per person per year. Uh, so in areas like that, uh, you see kind of uh, potentially overfishing happening. Uh, we, our owner, uh, he is very passionate about cephalopods and he figured it's a good idea to get a jump start on it now, figure out how to uh, kind of breed them before it gets to the point where out in the wild, there just aren't enough left. And uh, we kind of have to work really, really hard trying, trying, trying to save a species. He wants to get ahead of that before it becomes an issue essentially. Absolutely. No, that totally makes sense. And that totally makes sense too, to start with a healthy population rather than being like, all right, let's try this on the dying ones. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Um, so, you know, once you figure out how to do that and then you take it over to places like the Mediterranean, will it be one of those sort of like breed and then, you know, release back into the ocean sort of deals? Yes, that's actually our goal. Uh, there's a lot of misconception that we're trying to raise the octopus here for food. Not, mm. not really our goal. We do recognize because uh, 
once we are able to uh, complete that, uh, we're very, you know, it's a very scientific company. We'd like to release that paper so others can replicate it, get the same results and take that technology. We understand some people may be using it for farming purposes. Uh, that's just how it goes when something, when something is uh, released to the public. You don't know where they're going to take it, what direction. But our goal is to take those baby octopus at day 30, release them back onto parts of the reef where their populations have become depleted. Uh, and the reason why we're aiming for the 30-day mark, uh, rather than just uh, getting them to breed and immediately re uh, releasing them out, is because the paralarva do have a very low survivability rate the first 30 days of their life. Mm -hmm. In particular with a day octopus, we see uh, females can uh, lay up to 700,000 eggs, mm -hmm. uh, but those only 7,000 make it to the 30-day mark, and then only about 700 will kind of go on into adulthood. Uh, so we're figuring if we're able to uh, get to uh, that 30 days and we can even get 2% uh, to survive, uh, that would be double of what makes it uh, out in the wild. So that means we're doubling the amount of octopus that will be on the reefs to kind of help those populations out. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that makes sense. Um, how long, so like, tell us a little bit about the octopus life cycle and like how long we think they live. Um, Cause I know like, when we're talking to people about sharks and how important sharks are, like how we have to get them up to age, like 25 to 30, because they're not like reproductively mature until then. Tell us some more about like the octopus. Yeah. So for the octopus, they have a much shorter lifespan uh, than a lot of, of the larger creatures in the ocean. Uh, for the day octopus, uh, average lifespan is a year. Uh, okay. Very, very short life. Even uh, like the giant Pacific octopus, their average lifespan is, I believe, between three to five. Okay. Uh, so very short living animals and they are what we call terminal breeders so females uh, will release one clutch of eggs right there at the very end of their life and that's kind of it mm -hmm. uh, with them uh, we do see they reach sexual maturity at about uh, between four to six months so maybe about five months they'll be sexually mature they can start mating uh, the research is kind of unclear right now a lot of uh, researchers think that when octopus kind of mate that might be the end for the male. Uh, that's just so energetically costly. However, in our facility, we have been able to mate, uh, you know, have them mate multiple times mm -hmm. and the males start to die after that. So uh, maybe it just depends. It, it's entirely dependent actually on the age of the octopus. If they're already kind of at the end of their life, it makes sense that something so energetically costly would kill them. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. Yeah, but we do see females, they, they for sure can mate with multiple males. Uh, it's actually a really cool process. I'm going to nerd out a bit as we talk about octopus mating. Yeah. Uh, the males, the third arm to the right is called the hectocodilus. That is his mating arm. He inserts that into the female's mantle and he deposits spermatophore packets. Uh, the entire process can take uh, anywhere from a day to a week, depends on how compatible the two are. Uh, but they don't actually fertilize their eggs right then and there. The females just hold onto those packets until they are ready to lay eggs. Uh, so she mates with multiple males. She collects multiple packets. Uh, in one clutch, she can have multiple fathers, that means, uh, for, for her babies. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That is some, that's some baby mama drama, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's so cool. I didn't know that they could do that. Yeah, it's interesting, um, kind of, you know, as we're seeing the world change, you know, recently, I've been seeing a lot of people post or share things about how there are a lot of animals that have a lot more like reproductive control over their own bodies. Like harbor seals are, if they're like not 
able to like, or they're not like ready to have another kid, they can basically just like freeze the pregnancy inside of them um, and then wait until they are ready. Um, but I, that's really interesting about the octopus. And that's super beneficial genetically, you know, for making sure that there's a, a diverse population. I'm like convinced that that's why our sea otters are crazy is because they got down to like 30. So they have to be super inbred. And I'm like, that's why you guys are all psychotic. (laughs) I mean, it it makes sense. Makes sense. For sure. That's really cool. So what has been the most interesting thing that you've learned about the octopus or from your work? I think the most interesting thing for me is uh, the, the baby octopus themselves. Uh, the big gap that researchers are facing uh, on a global scale, regardless of what species you're looking at, uh, nobody really knows what baby octopus are, are eating out in the wild, which is why it's so hard to care for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, for the day octopus, they are smaller than about than half a grain of rice and they're transparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're very, very difficult to see. Uh, mm-hmm. And the food items that these animals are eating, definitely microscopic, not something that we can physically observe. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you would have to do is try to catch some out in the wild and then do a genetic analysis on their gut contents uh, and hope that that animal has eaten. Yeah. Um, how difficult is that to do? Uh, it has not been done for most species of octopus. So uh, okay. they, they did it for the common octopus. I believe off of Spain, and they were able to identify some echinoderms, uh, some a lot of crustaceans, you know, things that basically the larval forms of the things that adults are eating. So it kind of makes sense. Yeah, definitely. No, that makes sense for sure. Um, and you guys haven't been able to figure out what they're eating. No, we've tried. Uh, we're right now. We're in the process of seeing one. If this is this a food item that these baby octopus will even eat. Uh, we know for sure they actually will not eat uh, frozen food or dead things. It has to be alive and moving around. Uh, we think probably to uh, kind of trigger that hunting instinct in them. But uh, like a trial, we did frozen um, artemia or brine shrimp and uh, live brine shrimp, and they never touched the frozen stuff. They only ate the uh, live stuff. Yeah. That is really interesting. Okay, that's cool. I've heard that brine shrimp is like really hard to keep alive. The brine shrimp are pretty easy. The problem is they're just so, they're, they're not very nutritious. It's like feeding yeah. them on potato chips. So uh, you, you just can't, uh, you can't get too far on a diet of potato chips as much as we would all love that, I think. Right, exactly. I feel you. I love that your cat has so much to say back there right now. Yeah, he, he's my manager. So yeah, he, he knows yeah. he's telling me uh, what I'm not saying correctly. Yeah. yeah, he's letting you know. That's good. Is it just one cat? Cause it kind of sounds like two. Yeah, we have a we have a little uh, housemate right now that I'm uh, watching uh, for my friend. So uh, her name is Miko. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, They're just playing. Well, I hope playing around. Yeah, <laughs> that's super cute. Nice. Um, so where do you so the project basically you guys are in the process of figuring out the details you're going to release the paper do you guys plan to like make more like extend your little octopus farms into other parts of the world that i don't really know um off the top of my head um i know we are hoping to expand at the very least right here uh in hawaii Mm -hmm. Um, sorry there's like a helicopter flying right over me i'm gonna wait for that to pass no worries um but i believe yeah uh once we are able to uh 
successfully do this with the uh, day octopus. I know our uh, owner would like to try to work with other species that are found here in Hawaii and then expand outwards to other species found, found on a global scale. So I, I'd imagine so. That's awesome. Very cool. So what's next for you? I know you, um, you know, are very into this octopus farm and then also like you do whale watching. Are octopus and whales like your main focus or do you plan to branch out into other areas of marine conservation? Yeah, so um, right now I would say that um, my, my focus would be on, on whales and dolphins. I definitely uh, have grown in appreciation of working with these octopus. Um, mm -hmm had worked with invertebrates in my life before. I have done some uh, work with green sea turtles here in Hawaii, uh, but I kind of wanted to branch out, do maybe more lab stuff, more, uh, more of the scientific things rather than uh, strict uh, behavioral observations with wild cetaceans, even though I think that's the, cool that's the coolest thing ever. Mm -hmm. uh, but basically what I'm trying to do is see what I would potentially like to do maybe for a, for a master's or PhD program. I don't want to go in without knowing what kind of my end goal would be for that. So as many projects as I can get on to see uh, what kind of research I would like to personally do in the future, that that's my goal right now, just trying to figure out what that looks like for me. Absolutely. And I think that's totally a smart way to do it. A lot of people, you know, want to go straight from undergrad to master's and like, that's also a valid option, like if that works for you, but I'm kind of the same way that you are of like wanting to take your time to figure things out and make sure you're doing like what you want to do. Cause I definitely too have noticed in a lot of different conservation stories, a lot of people, and obviously this is a little different, but like jumping the gun on stuff. And it's like, it does seem to be better to take the proper amount of time. Obviously we're under the pressures of like climate change, but take like enough time to where you're not rushing into something, but also like, you're not like just like letting everything die in front of you. No, definitely. And uh, my biggest fear is becoming so specialized, you know, that's what, especially a PhD and then, and then freaking out, oh, wow, no, I actually really hate that. Yeah. Uh, that would be horrible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I feel you on that. I, yeah, I, think Deborah Giles I've had her on the podcast before and like obviously I think she loves her work studying killer whales um but she said that if she were to go back and do it again that she would definitely study salmon instead interesting. well interesting interesting uh, let me go grab my dog real quick because she's <laughs> yes. the worst <laughs> oh my gosh yeah and we're back <laughs> she's just like she's like mom's doing something so I should just like be the worst that I could be today. Yeah. Cannot be the worst. Oh my God. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm like, she's so cute. She's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, uh, she like has napped all day. It's now four o'clock here. She's been sleeping all day. So she's like, it's time. Time to, to <laughs> Time to do crime. Yes. Amazing. Um, so obviously like we learn a lot of things about biology and whatnot from studying marine animals, but what have you learned on like the human side of things from your conservation work? All right. Yeah. So uh, I think one of the main things I've learned is that uh, people just don't really know how bad it is out in the natural world. Uh, but once you tell them about it, they do become uh, driven or inspired to try to do something. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, um, a lot of times people ask me, like, what effects climate change has had uh, here in Hawaii? And I always like to point out uh, in 2015, we had our worst coral bleaching event in history here, 
where a lot of our reefs just started to die off because of those sustained high temperatures. And um, the uh, corals, uh, the zooxanthellae in there, uh, were not able to go back into the corals uh, because, because turf algae had grown over it. So it changed the entire ecology of our reefs. We have turf algae-based uh, systems rather than coral reefs in a lot of areas now. And we're still trying to see uh, how that has changed things here in Hawaii, what the fishing is going to look like. Is it worse? Is it better? Uh, and this, you know, puts people's livelihood at stake sometimes, uh, especially locally. A lot of families uh, live off the ocean, quite literally, mm-hmm. where the family who that's maybe where they get their protein from, just whatever they can catch and bring back. Uh, and when you tell people this, uh, you know, they go, well, how can we help? What, you know, what, what can we do? Because Hawaii is such a beautiful area. Uh, we, everyone wants to do their best to preserve it. And so, you know, give them, I'll give them whatever, uh, tips and tricks, uh, well, that, that they can do in their lives. But of course, uh, the kind of elephant in the room, things that no one wants to hear is it all starts with policy and legislation. We have right. to be electing the people who are making, uh, who can put policies in place to help it out. Uh, and I'm all for individuals doing as much as they can, but we're getting to the, we're at the point where it needs to be policy if we want to see those those differences. Absolutely, like policy and corporations. Um, yeah, Kendra and Liam and I have talked quite a bit about that and about you know kind of eco anxiety that people get um, because the planet is pretty much falling apart in front of our eyes. And for those of us that are aware of it and like affected by those changes, like emotionally, not just because we're all physically going to be affected by the changes, but those of us who see it and who care, it's really hard sometimes. It's like, you know, do what you can, but also know that like you as one person can't solve all the problems, you know, Um, which is hard to do because there's, you know, people that are driven enough that if they could, they would, but it's just like, at this point we need politicians. Um, and I think right now we're seeing just given the political climate and all of the crazy changes that are happening in the United States, that it is important now more than ever to be voting for the environment and human rights alike. I definitely agree with that 100%. It's, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll start to see a really big shift in perceptions. Uh, yeah, a lot of people think they don't have the power. Uh, you know, one person can't make a difference. But I mean, hey, with, with votes, sometimes it is that one person. So maybe. yeah, that's true. That's a good there's always like a lot of different ways to look at things um, for sure. And like, I mean, I was it's a balance of like, you know, don't put all the weight of the world on your shoulders, but also like don't be, you know, don't just like let things go by and be like, well, I can't do anything about it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, definitely important to, to address the policy issue. Um, and I'm curious about this. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but like also like another elephant in the room is just like white people moving to Hawaii. And, um, obviously as like a Marine scientist, that's a very tempting, you know, thing to do. And I've personally stayed away from Hawaii because, um, I've never even visited, but just because that I've heard it's so bad with white people moving there. And obviously if you're not comfortable talking about this, I can edit this out, but, um, can you maybe fill us in a little bit on, you know, what we can do to be as respectful as possible to native Hawaiians? Yeah, of course. So, um, uh, you can keep this in, uh, no, no problem there. One thing I do want to say is, uh, while I w- I'm local, you know, what we call Kama'aina, born and raised here, mm-hmm. uh, 
Naka, so I'm not like a native Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be speaking uh, for them. Uh, however, what I've noticed is uh, one, unfortunately, we are definitely a uh, tourism based economy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, would like to be independent at this time, we're just not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're coming here to visit, for example. Um, all, all I think anyone wants is that you're re- respectful uh, to the people who live here to understand that while this may be your vacation, this is our home. Uh, so treat our home with respect. Uh, obviously, we're not leaving trash on the beach. Or we, when you when you go swimming, for example, make sure that you are using reef safe uh, sunscreen, uh, which is um, only the mineral based stuff. I think it's zinc um, oxide and titanium dioxide. Those are the only two ingredients that it should have. Mm. Um, otherwise, it's going to kill all the corals. Um, and just and uh, the big one, uh, the big one, I guess, for uh, me and marine science in particular, is when you come here, our wildlife, uh, the wildlife, they're, they're wild animals. It's it's not you know a touch tray, um, at an aquarium. Mm-hmm. Respect them, give them their space. Uh, don't be uh, if you see like a turtle in the water, don't swim around trying to uh, chase it, touch it, or ride it. Mm-hmm. If a monk seal on our beaches. Uh, the monk seals are endemic, meaning found nowhere else in the world. Uh, they're also endangered. We only have about fifteen hundred left. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't harass them as they're sleeping on the on the beach. Um, yeah. As far as moving here goes, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say no one can move here, but uh, what's happening right now is we have a lot of people buying properties uh, who only live here seasonally, uh, and then they use those properties for the rest of the year as like an Airbnb. Uh, and that drives up the cost of living uh, mm. an, an insane amount. Like, uh, I definitely have a really good deal where I am right now. But uh, one second, my cat is uh, trying to get my attention. But of course, I have a big deal. But a lot of people uh, for much who have much smaller spaces than I do pay so much more. And uh, it's it's largely due to that fact that a lot of these are now vacation rentals. Yeah, um, we saw the same thing on Orcas Island quite a bit, and Monterey fortunately has a ban on Airbnb for that exact reason, Um, and the rent in Monterey is still, like, ridiculously high, Um, so I feel you on that, but yeah, um, I'm, thank you for talking about that, it's like, it's definitely, I think, it's uncomfortable to bring up things like culture and race and, like, these things that, you know, you know, potentially could divide us, but, you know, we all ultimately want to be respectful at the end of the day. And so I appreciate you sharing your perspective on that so that we can take that into account for anyone who's thinking of traveling and or moving to Hawaii. Oh, definitely. You know, and uh, as always, i just ask, you know, uh, people here are very, very friendly. Um, even uh, unofficial sources like us, you know, ask Reddit, for example, mm-hmm. they're pretty respectful and have really good um, insights too. So I, I would, you know, just do my research before, before anything. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. Is there anything else that you care to share with our listeners today? Um, I, I, I mean, I know we already touched about them, but if everyone can, uh, do a little more research about those false killer whales, just because so many people don't know about them. Uh, I highly recommend going and looking at uh, Cascadia research collective. Uh, they do all of our uh, cetacean research here in Hawaii, basically. Uh, and it was uh, Dr. Robin Baird, uh, a lot of his research that got those false killer whales uh, listed on that uh, Endangered Species Act. So 
uh, you know, any way to contribute to Cascadia, learn more about them and all the incredible work they can do, go for it. And as far as for our people who like to eat seafood, um, you know, I definitely like to eat seafood. It's nice and fresh here. I'm sure you can relate to that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, always try to be sustainable with what you eat. I'm sure everyone knows about the uh, seafood watch developed by Monterey Bay Aquarium. Yes. I, uh, but I know it's still on the website. Mm-hmm. Uh, always a great tool to make sure that we're doing we're doing our part whenever we choose to eat seafood to make sure it is ethically and sustainably uh, sourced. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'll be sure to link the octopus farm um, and, you know, any sort of pilot whale information that you have, I can put that in the links uh, or in the description of this episode. So um, people can go check that out. But thanks again for being here. I really appreciate it. this was super awesome. So thank you. Yes, of course.